a few things I want to say before we get uh, going. Um, this evening, uh, I want you and I challenge you to be careful and to be patient thinkers and listeners with me. Uh, in a lot of ways, what I'm going to do is I'm going to present to you an aspect of Christ's life that is touched upon uh, by certain theologians, but not really spoken of in the broader scheme of the evangelical church. Uh, much of what I'm going to say tonight is going to be new to a lot of you. Uh, it was new to me as I was uh beginning to learn about uh, this this aspect of Christ's life. Um, so if you would do one thing with me, and that is to to be patient with me, be patient with yourself as well. Don't check out um, when you hear certain things, but continue to paddle with me as we climb up this this high mountain of Christology. And in a lot of ways, what I'm doing is I'm going, I'm, 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 I'm taking what uh, those uh, theologians of old have said of concerning our Christ and the Holy Spirit, and I'm presenting it to you, and I'm saying, well, why don't you, and I'm saying to you, why don't we just climb this mountain together and think with these great giants of the faith and what our Bible says? Uh, so, so if you would, please uh, be patient and let's think together. And uh, in light of that, and or when it's all done, I pray that you will have a better understanding of Christ and who He is in His person and work, especially the Holy Spirit. What I want to do now is I want to quickly uh, recap what's been said. It's been maybe over a month since we considered uh, Christ in our series of Christology. And when we consider Christ, uh, there's a few things that we have to uh, consider. And there, there's a few things that we have touched upon as we've built this doctrine of the person of Christ. Mind you, we haven't gone to the work of Christ yet. We've only uh, touched at the person of Christ. So when we consider the person of Christ, one of the first things or the first thing we are to say is Jesus Christ is truly God. Uh, that's a softball down the middle. Uh, many reject that idea from cults, or many from the cults reject that idea, but it's of utmost importance that we recognize that Jesus Christ is truly God. And not that he is one God in a pantheon of deities, uh, not that he is a God, not that he is uh, less than the Father, but he is co-equal to the Father and the Spirit. What that means is all that the Father possesses, meaning uh, the Father is uh, of himself, uh, the Father is simple without parts, um, the Father is impassable, immutable without change, all that the Father is, all that the Father possesses, the Son is and possesses, along with the Holy Spirit. So when we consider our Christ, we must force, first and foremost say that Jesus Christ is truly God. But in addition to that, we aren't to just leave it there. For Jesus Christ is also truly man. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. Remember, the Trinity is there is one God who eternally exists in three persons. Those three persons are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can think of it as the Father, the, 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 there is one God who exists Father-wise, Son-wise, and Spirit-wise. That's how we are to think of the persons or subsistences within the Trinity. But so when we think about Christ, we, we say that he is truly God, but truly man. Truly God 
and truly man. I like the language rather than fully God and fully man. He's truly God and uh, truly man. All of what it means to be human, all that constitutes our humanity. Our confession says that uh, the son uh, took on all of our common uh, affirmities and proper uh, uh, essential properties thereof. All of it, what it means to be human. Uh, Jesus, or the eternal son, uh, assumed. He took upon himself. What that means is Jesus Christ got tired. He had to go to sleep. It's awkward. Or it's, it's funny when people say, well, Jesus Christ never laughed. Uh, he, he never sneezed. You know, he did those things because he was truly human. He got weak. He got hungry. Um, he got angry at times. He cried. So what it means to be human to us Jesus Christ in his humanity took on, which touched, which hits at, or which moves us to the doctrine of the incarnation. If you remember, we, we spoke about the incarnation and what that really means is it means that the eternal son took on flesh. He became incarnate. He became flesh. Okay. And when we think of the incarnation, there's a few things that we, that we hit upon or that we touch at. Uh, One of them is the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union, I don't know if you remember that, but what that essentially means is this, that when the eternal son, when he took on flesh, these two natures, divinity and humanity, uh, never mixed into each other. They, they, were never, they were never confused, compounded, um, but these two natures that exist in this one person remain distinct from one another, but never separate. That's an important thing to know when we consider the hypostatic union and the one person and two natures of Christ, that when that Christ in his person, when we think of the two natures, he, he is one person with two natures, and these two natures are never separate, but we must distinguish between these two natures. Let me first, for, first and foremost define uh, a person and nature and that distinction. Frank Sheet says this, and this is going to be important for us to, as we move on, uh, the distinction between what and who is the distinction between nature and person of every man the two questions every man the two questions what is he and who is he can be answered every man in other words is both a nature and a person into every into uh into my every action nature and person enter for instance instance i speak i the person speak but i am able to speak only because i am a man because it is of my nature to speak. I discover that there are all sorts of things I can do and all sorts of things I cannot do. My nature decides. I can think, speak, walk. These actions go with the nature of men, which I can have. What that means is this. Why can you speak, walk, think the way that you do? Because you are human. Why can't you fly like a bird? Because it is not of your nature to fly. It is of the nature to birds to fly. So your nature dictates what you do as a person. In Christ, there are two natures and one person. Uh, a man may be thought, uh, a man then may be thought as a person who acts and a nature which decides the field in which he acts. So the hypostatic union, when we consider it, uh, our confession says so that the two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. What that means is God and man met in the one person, Jesus Christ. 
That's what that means. As you know, I've said it before, the Puritan Thomas Goodwin said, in the incarnation, it is, uh, it is uh, God and man uh, kissed. And what the result was, was uh, Jesus Christ, who was truly God and truly man. Which moves us to the doctrine of the communication of properties. And saints, what that simply means is this. Um, that the attributes of each of the person's nature are communicated to the person of Christ. What that means is this, that what we say about the human nature of Christ, we say of the person of Christ. What we say of the deity of Christ, we say of the person of Christ. So what that means is this, when we say Jesus Christ died, we know that Jesus Christ is truly God, right? He's truly God, so he can't die according to his divinity, But it's a proper to say that Jesus Christ died because he is also truly man. So when we say Jesus Christ died, we are saying that improperly, but also properly in the sense of it is the person of Christ that dies, not the human nature of Christ that dies. Remember that natures don't die, but it is a person that dies. Uh, So when we consider Christ and all that he does, we are to consider whatever he does according to whatever nature, he's doing it as a person. When Christ performs miracles or when he, when, he, uh, 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 when he does certain things, it is the person of Christ that does it according to either his human nature or divine nature. Uh, lastly, I want to say, uh, let's, say, let's see in chapter 8, paragraph 7, our, our confession says, Christ in the work of mediation acteth according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Yet by the reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. So that is a recap recap of the incarnation. And then we moved on to the virgin birth. um, And we spoke a little bit about uh, the impeccability of Christ. And I'm not even going to attempt to recap that. All I'm going to say is this, that it was impossible. Christ was unable to sin. Not be, not, it wasn't that he could reform a sin, um, or that he was ever sinless, but, but Jesus Christ could never sin. He was unable, unable to sin. If you want more on that, go listen to the sermon. Now, what we want to do is we want to, uh, continue our study in the person of Christ. And we want to look at an aspect of Christ's life that is, uh, very unique but very glorious, very mysterious, but it will cause us to, it will, it will move us to, to move in, in a way that praises our Christ and looks at our Christ in a way that I think we've never have before. And that is Jesus Christ in his life and ministry and the working of the Holy Spirit in his life and ministry. So if you want a title, you can say, you can write down that the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ, in the life and ministry of Christ. And we only have one point, mind you. In the life and ministry of Christ, he had many relationships with various individuals. We read in the gospel accounts of the intimate love that Christ had with his father, all that Christ did, remember that he is the eternal son. He obeyed his father up to the point of death. He willingly submitted 
uh, all that he did, all that he did, his, his will, his, in, his entire life to the Father. We read of his relationship with the 12 disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John being those who were the closest to Christ. We read of the various encounters, his various encounters with, with sinners and the religious elite of the day. But if we were to say, who did Christ lean upon the most in his life and ministry? It was undoubtedly the Holy Spirit. Who did Jesus Christ lean upon the most in his life and ministry? It was the Holy Spirit. St. Clair Ferguson has said that the Holy Spirit was Christ's closest companion. He goes on to summarize the various stages in the life of Christ in which the Holy Spirit was at work. He says this, the spirit who was present and active at Christ's conception as the head of the new creation by whom he was anointed at baptism, who directed his, who directed him throughout his temptations, empowered him in his miracles, energized him in his sacrifice, and vindicated him in his resurrection. Now indwells, now indwells in his disciples, Christ's disciples. In other words, it is the Holy Spirit saints. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is the one who accompanied the person of Christ from conception to glorification more intimately than anyone else. And saints, no lesson in Christology, no lesson in the person of Christ is complete without understanding the role of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Christ. If we were to talk about the life and ministry of Christ and leave out the workings of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Christ, then we have an incomplete teaching of the life and ministry of Christ. This, saints, is of utmost importance for understanding our Christ and who he is. So what I want to do in this point is I want to lay out a number of ways in which the Holy Spirit worked in the life and ministry of Christ, but I'm not going to do that alone. I'm going to be helped greatly by the Puritan John Owen. In volume three, in the works of John Owen, Owen describes the work of the Spirit in the life of Christ, unlike anyone who ever has in our Reformed tradition. Mind you, John Owen has said uh, many things that others haven't said in our Reformed tradition. He, but with this in particular, he takes Christology to, Christology to a place that. It hasn't been before. He, he looks at the relationship between the Holy Spirit and his work upon Christ. And he pulls out all of the glories of the person of Christ in his life, in his ministry, and the workings of the Holy Spirit. And he lays out 11 ways in which the Holy Spirit is said to have worked in the life and ministry of Christ. Now, we're not going to go through all 11 ways, but we will touch a lot of what John Owen says here. So, number one, the Holy Spirit, John Owen says, the Holy Spirit worked in the life and ministry of Christ by first the framing, forming, and the miraculous conception of the body of Christ in the womb of the Blessed Virgin was the peculiar and a special work of the Holy Ghost. In other words, what Owen is saying is 
The first work of the Spirit in the life of Christ is the forming, framing, and the miraculous conception of the body of Christ in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It is the Holy Spirit who is the efficient cause in the incarnation. He is the efficient cause in the impregnation of the Virgin Mary. So what does that mean for Mary? She is the material cause in the incarnation. Luke 1, verses 34 through 37. After the angel has told Mary that she will bear a son, she says in verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How would this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Herman Bobbing says, From this it is evident that the activity of the Holy Spirit with respect to this conception did not consist in the infusion of any heavenly or divine substance in Mary. We will unpack that a little bit in a minute. But in a demonstration of a power that made her womb fertile in the act and overshadowing her as a cloud. In other words, God did not fuse the womb of Mary with a heavenly or divine substance, but the Holy Spirit powerfully worked and overshadowed the womb of Mary that made her fertile. Remember, saints, Christ was not born of ordinary generation. Christ is not born the way you and I are born. Christ uh, it is the Holy Spirit who worked in the womb of Mary to supernaturally conceive the person of Christ in the virgin. Francis Turretin is helpful here. He says, now the spirit acts here, not materially, but only efficiently by power, not by seed. That is of utmost importance by power, not by seed, by might, not by intercourse. So that he was conceived in the power of the spirit, not from the substance of the spirit, not by generation, but by blessing and consecration. And what Francis Churchill is doing here is there was a heresy by the Sicinians who said, well, since Jesus Christ was um, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, then is it proper then to call the Holy Spirit the Father of Christ? It makes sense. Shouldn't we call Jesus or the Holy Spirit the Father of Christ? Since it is the Holy Spirit who is the efficient cause in the impregnation of the Virgin Mary. But what Chiriton says is in order for one to be a father of another, the substance of a father must must be released from him and be given to the child. So when my son Owen was born, who's actually named after John Owen, when my son Owen was born, a part of my substance was given to him. The son doesn't come from the substance of the Holy Spirit. A bit of the Holy Spirit isn't taken out and then given infused and mixed in with the Virgin Mary, and then thereby a result is Jesus Christ. 
But the Holy Spirit powerfully used the substance of Mary to form the human nature of Jesus Christ. Francis Turretin says, Now, it is one thing to form by his own power something from matter, assumed from some other source, meaning that the Holy Spirit didn't have no material to use when he powerfully overshadowed the womb of Mary, just like when there was no material used in the first creation. But he used the substance of Mary by power to miraculously conceive Jesus Christ in the virgin's womb. Another generate from his own substance. The Holy Spirit did the former, but not the latter. Um, All of that is to say (laughs) that the Holy Spirit is not the father of Jesus Christ. Um, But the Holy Spirit overshadowed the womb of Mary in order for her to become pregnant. See, quickly, saints, do you see how we can make, we can say one statement that can rise other questions you know, we, we can say that Jesus is the Holy Spirit that powerfully worked in the virgin's womb. And then some can say, well, isn't that would mean that the Holy Spirit is the Father of Jesus? We must be precise in our Christology. We must be accurate in all that we say about Jesus Christ. Move on. But we must take note when Owen says it is the Holy Spirit who framed and formed the miraculous conception of the Virgin Mary. And what he means by this, what he means by framing and formally is forming is although it is the father and we read in Hebrews, although it is the father who prepared the body for Christ, it is the Holy Spirit in the virgin's womb who formed and framed the human nature to be proper, to, to be, to be fitted for that body. That was prepared for him. The body was already been there. or The, the, the Father is the one who, who prepared the body, but it is the Holy Spirit who sculpted and formed the human nature of that one who was in the womb of Mary to be fitted for the body in which the Father prepared beforehand. It was the Holy Spirit that knitted together, formed and framed the human nature, and then he, he knitted together the human and the divine nature of Christ. You can call the Holy Spirit the master builder, for he was responsible for the actual formation and making ready of the person who would take on that body that was prepared beforehand. So if we were to ask who's responsible for the pregnancy of the Holy Spirit, of the Virgin Birth, of the Virgin Mary, although it is a triune act, the Holy Spirit played a peculiar and, and, a, and a special role in the impregnation of the Virgin Mary. So we see that the first work of the Holy Spirit in life of Christ is the conception of, the, of Jesus Christ in the womb of Mary. From conception, the Holy Spirit was there. The second work of the Holy Spirit in life of Christ is sanctification. Owen says the human nature of Christ being thus formed in the womb by a creating act of the Holy Spirit was at was in an instant of its conception sanctified and filled with grace according to the measure of its receptivity. In other words, it is the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary that sanctifies the person of Christ with respect to his human nature. The Holy Spirit does not need to sanctify the person of Christ with respect to his divine nature. 
right? Because the divinity of Christ is already sanctified. He doesn't need the Holy Spirit. But with respect to Christ's human nature, as, as soon as Jesus Christ or Mary was pregnant with Christ, the Holy Spirit sanctified the person of Christ with respect to his human nature. John Owen says, The human nature of Christ, being thus formed in the womb by a creating act of the Holy Spirit, was in an instant of its conception sanctified and filled with all grace according to the measure of its receptivity. Being not begotten by natural generation, it derived no taint of original sin or corruption from Adam. His nature, therefore, as miraculously created in a manner described, was in it absolutely innocent, spotless, and free from sin. What Owen is saying is this, and this is remarkable. This is mind-blowing, hopefully for you, because it was for me. It is not simply because Christ is not born of ordinary generation, thereby uh, not being infected with original sin is the reason why Christ is sinless. Because Christ is not from the substance of Joseph doesn't mean, or not necess- that's not the reason why he's sinless. Just because Christ is the God-man doesn't, is not the reason why he is sinless, but rather the source of Christ's sinlessness is the Holy Spirit. The source of Christ's sinlessness is the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit sanctified the human nature of Christ at conception. We often think because Christ is a divine person, since he is truly God, then that's the source of his sinful sinlessness and his holiness, which is true to a certain extent for the, for the second person of the Trinity could not unite himself to, with a sinful uh, nature. He took on a nature that was whole, a human nature that was holy um, or that that was essential, that was, that was like ours, and the Holy Spirit made it holy. But, but here, John Owen brings out that Christ does not gain his holiness and sinlessness primarily from the fact that he's a divine person. It's not because Christ is God. Because, um, as a result, he's sinless or holy. But the source of his holiness is the Holy Spirit, the sanctification of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. You might ask, what's the biblical basis for this idea? Consider Luke 135, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And hear this, for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Notice the angel says that the Holy Child, Christ as an infant, the one who will come out of the womb of Mary is a Holy Child. How can the angel speak of Christ as an infant before he was even born be holy? Because it is the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit who worked in the virgin womb of Mary to sanctify the person of Christ with respect to his human nature. Jesus Christ came out the womb holy and truly sinless because of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is of utmost importance for us saints. You might ask, and let me, let me stop here so our brains can come down a little bit and, 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 and take a rest, but with respect to our salvation... This point is of utmost importance. You see, we needed a man in order for us to be saved. We needed one who was truly man in order for man to be saved from their sins. The old boys would say, if Christ in his person, according to his human nature, was merely a phantom, then our salvation is a phantom. It is Christ 
the eternal son who needed to take on all of our essential properties and common infirmities thereof in order for us to be redeemed. The old boys will also say, for what is not assumed is not redeemed. What is not assumed, what is not taking on is not healed. We needed one who was truly man, but not just any man. We needed a man who was truly sinless and truly holy. We needed one who was like the first man, Adam, to, in order to reverse and undo what the first Adam or what the first man has done. We needed one, a perfect man, to represent fallen humanity. We needed one to take on all that we are in order for all that we are to be redeemed. Cyril of Alexandria, an early church father, he says this, wonderful quote, if he conquered as God, to us it is nothing. But if he conquered as man, we conquered in him. If Christ did his work as God, it's nothing to us. But if Christ did his work as man, it's everything for us. The Holy Spirit sanctified the human nature of Jesus Christ, thereby equipping him as the Son of God to be the Savior of men. You see, saints, and this is remarkable, in the womb of Mary, there was a divine equipping going on. It wasn't merely that, that the, the Holy Spirit was, was, was sanctifying the human nature of Christ and uniting the, 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 the human nature and the divine nature into this one person, but there was, a, there was an eternal, there was a divine equipping going on. The Holy Spirit was preparing Jesus Christ for what he was going to do in his life and ministry. The Spirit prepares the human nature of Christ so he can perform his work of mediation, so he can properly represent us. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit's continued work upon the person of Christ during his life. A long quote here, but it is very good. John Owen says, "The Lord, that the Lord Jesus Christ, or the Lord Christ as man, did and was to exercise all grace by the rational faculties and powers of his soul, his understanding, will, and affections, for he acted grace as a man, made of a woman, under, made under the law. His divine nature was not unto him in place of a soul, nor did immediately operate the things which he performed as some old uh, vainly imagined. Let me stop there. What he means by that is, there was an ancient heresy where people believed that when, we, when, when you looked upon Jesus Christ, he was merely God in a flesh suit. That he had no human soul, no human will, um, uh, no human mind, but it was merely God. And he took on a flesh suit, and, but he operated as God. And the, the, the human body was merely the avenue in which God perf- uh, acted, in which the, the second person of the Trinity could perform. That's not what Owen is saying. That's, that's uh, ludicrous um, to think that. Um, but being a perfect man, his rational soul was in him the immediate principle of all of his moral operations, even as ours are in us. Now, in the improvement and exercise of these faculties, the powers of his soul he had and made a progress after the manner of men. For he was made like unto us in all things, yet without sin. In their increase, enlargement, and exercise, there was required 
a progression in grace also. And this he had continually by the Holy Ghost. Let me break that down. Owen is saying a few things here, but first he's highlighting the continued work of the Holy Spirit as Christ grew in stature. There was, there was, there, it's not as if the Holy Spirit worked in the womb of Mary and then, and then left uh, Jesus Christ alone with respect to his human nature. But the Holy Spirit accompanied Christ from, 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 from his birth all the way to maturity. He was present. He was there. Um, Luke 2, 40 says this, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and favor of God, was, and the favor of God was upon him. Um, Pastor Antonio, you're going to love this. We talked about this a long time ago. Saints, when we think of Jesus Christ, with respect to, his, to the knowledge he had as a boy, we tend to think that when he came out the womb as an infant, he knew everything. With, and I'm speaking with respect to his human nature. Of course, respect to his divine nature. He knew all things. But with respect to his human nature, Jesus Christ, as an infant, he knew the entire Bible upside down. He, he already knew how to obey his parents. He knew how to eat food and how to walk and how to do all those things. But, but Owen says here that, that Christ made a progress after the manner of other men. Just as us. We make progress in, from infancy to adulthood. Christ, as a boy, had to learn just as we had to learn. And when I say Christ, always I'm saying with respect to his human nature. Christ learned just as we learned. But the difference between our learning and Christ's learning is as Christ grew and as he learned and as he grew in wisdom and grace, more grace was being poured out upon him. More grace was being poured out upon him. As, in other words, as Christ grew in wisdom, he kept increasing in his ability to skillfully use the knowledge he obtained. He didn't forget one thing that he learned, but he mastered it, all that he learned. And saints, one, one implication of this is Christ as a boy learned about himself by reading the Old Testament scriptures? Did Christ, as a boy, according to his human nature, know that he was the Messiah as an infant? Did he know that he was going to bear the sins of his people as an infant? He didn't. He didn't. How could he know? If he was truly man, how could he know those things? Consider a quote from Mark Jones. Jesus, it's a long one, but it's great. Jesus came to a growing understanding of his messianic calling by reading the scriptures. He had to learn the Bible just as we must. Of course, he's the greatest theologian who ever lived. He's reading the Bible. Um, he's, his reading of the Bible would have been free from the problems of uh, that beset Christians who wrongly interpret passages and bring their own sinful dispositions to the text. Meaning Jesus Christ was the greatest expositor who ever lived. Um, we go on. Uh, nevertheless, we must not imagine that Christ had all the answers as a baby and merely waited to begin his ministry at the age of 30 without putting in hard yet delightful work on a daily basis in obedience to his father's will. Christ had to work. 
to understand the scriptures. As Christopher Wright notes, the Old Testament enabled Jesus Christ to understand himself. As Jesus Christ read the Old Testament, he he started to understand more about himself. The answer to this self-identity came from the Bible, the Hebrew scriptures, in which he found a rich tapestry of figures, historical persons, prophetic pictures, and symbols of worship. Yet, and in this tapestry, where others saw only a fragmented collection of various figures and hopes, Jesus saw his own face. That is a wonderful quote. Meaning when people read the Old Testament in that time, they saw historical people. They saw, they saw historical places. They read about Noah and Abraham. Jesus read himself. He saw himself. His Hebrew Bible provided the shape of his own identity. He had to study to know what to do. While he was never ignorant of what he needed to know at any stage of his life, he nevertheless was required to learn. And the source of this learning was the Holy Spirit. How did Christ know these things? How, how was he enabled? How, who enabled him as a young boy to see himself in the Old Testament scriptures? It's the power and the working of the Holy Spirit. And when we consider this point, saints, this also helps us protect Christ's two natures, never mixing or washing into one another. Christ, according to his divine nature, knew all things, but, but his divine nature never reached into the human nature. Enabling the human nature to know all things. When Jesus Christ as an infant, when he wanted to know certain things, he didn't tap into his divine resources. But the Holy Spirit empowered and enabled him to know and grow and learn. Remember, saints, the, holy, the, the two natures of Christ never mix or wash into one another, but they remain separated, but, never, but, but also distinct. Um, this also helps us guard against those heretics who say Christ wasn't truly a man. Some say that the eternal son really didn't take on human flesh and he wasn't a man. He didn't have a true human nature. But when we hear and when we consider this truth of Christ as a man, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, grew and, and, and his knowledge progressed as in his life, that dashes to pieces all the arguments from those heretics who say that Jesus Christ wasn't a man. He was truly a man. One evidence of that is he grew in wisdom. He grew in stature and his knowledge. So we see the work of the spirit in the life of Christ uh, didn't stop at conception, but continued. The Holy Spirit continued to work in the life of Christ as he matured in age. Um, the spirit continued to fill the human nature of Christ for his task, for his mediatorial office. Fourthly, the work of the Spirit in the ministry of Christ. The work of the Spirit in the ministry of Christ. Uh, Ray, could you turn on the air, please, for me, brother? Matthew three sixteen. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. We see at Christ's baptism that the Holy Spirit descends like a dove upon the person of Christ according to his whole human nature. Remind you, Again, precision is important. The Holy Spirit does not descend upon the person of Christ according to his divine nature. He descends upon the person of Christ according to his human nature. Now, we aren't to think that this is the first time Christ has ever received the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit has always been 
with Christ according to his human nature. But what we see at Christ's baptism is he received the fullness of the spirit. He received the spirit for this anointing for his public messianic ministry. The spirit was poured upon Christ in a new and a fresh way. So he can uh, publicly do the things that was required for him um, that the father laid before him in that covenant of redemption. And during the life of Christ, we see the Holy Spirit working in the life of Christ, in the ministry of Christ, at almost every aspect of his ministry. Let me give you two. We see the working of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of Christ as he preached the gospel. As he preached the gospel, John Owen says, the Holy Spirit, in a peculiar manner, anointed him with all those extraordinary powers and gifts which were necessary for the exercise and discharging of his office on earth. What that means is the Holy Spirit empowered Christ to perform that threefold office that Brother Bobby talked about uh, a while ago. Remember those offices? Prophet, priest, and king. But John Owen pays an especial attention to the office of prophet, prophets were to speak the words of God in the Old Testament. And it was the Holy Spirit who enabled the person of Christ, according to his human nature, to speak the very words of God. Isaiah 6, 61, 1, a prophecy of, of Christ says, the spirit of the Lord is upon him because the Lord has anointed me or the spirit is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This is a prophecy of Christ saying that the Holy Spirit is to come upon the Messiah publicly. John testified of this truth in John 3.34. For... He whom God has sent utters the very words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. And as we read the gospel accounts, we see many who were amazed at what Christ was saying. In fact, you would go, we can also, we can say that the people were more amazed at what Christ was saying rather than what Christ was doing. They were amazed of how Christ was to, oh, how he, how he opened the scriptures and how he preached not only accurately, but he preached authoritatively. Let me give you four examples. Luke 4.22, And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? Is this not that little boy that we used to mess with? How is he saying these things? Authoritatively and accurately. Matthew 7, 28 and 29, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Matthew 13, 54, and he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so, they, um, so that they were astonished. And he said, where did this man, and they, and they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Last one, Mark 6, 2. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. 
And the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as he performed by his hands. How can Jesus Christ, who operated according to his human nature, astonish and amaze the crowds when he preached? The answer, the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the reason. When Christ is speaking, it is not Christ who speaks as God. But Christ spoke as man who was given the Holy Spirit without measure. When they heard Jesus Christ, they were hearing the words, yes, of the God-man. But he was speaking according to his human nature in the power of the Holy Spirit without measure. Secondly, we see the work in the Holy Spirit in the ministry of Christ as he performed miracles. And it's here at this point where John Owen takes the doctrine of Christ to a place that it hasn't gone before. He says this, the only singular and immediate act of the person of the son on the human nature was the assumption of it into subsistence with himself. What he means is this, the only act in which we see the eternal son on the human nature was his decision to unite himself to a human nature. That's the only act we see from the eternal son upon the human nature. That's the only act we see in which the the divine nature and the human nature mix with one another, but remain separate, of course, or distinct. Owen goes on, every other act then including all of Christ's miracles were performed by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in in the human Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of the son, no less than the spirit of the father. And hence he is the immediate operator of all divine acts of the son himself, even upon the human nature. What he means is this is the Holy Spirit is the efficient and perfecting cause, final cause of all the divine works of Christ. Well, since the divine works of the triune God, well, since the miracles of Christ is a divine work, work by God, then it is the Holy Spirit who is the agent in which it performs. In other words, all that Christ did in his life and ministry, he did according to the human nature, to his human nature by the power of the Holy Spirit, even his miracles. That's what we're saying. And this true saints, it causes us to reevaluate how we look at the miracles of Christ. For we always believed that when Christ performed miracles, he did so because he was God in the flesh. When he knew the history of that woman of at the well, oh, he knows her history of sleeping with these other men and her relationships with other men because he tapped in into his divine nature and thereby he knew what was going on with her. Or when he walks on water, he's doing so because he is God and he performs that act uh, according to his divinity. Or when he casts out demons, he casts out demons 
by his own divine power. But here we see that's not the case. But as man, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Christ performed miracles. And saints, we have good biblical warrant to believe this. When Christ in Luke 4 goes in the synagogue and he opens the scroll, he goes where? He goes to Isaiah 61. What does he read? He reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news of the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and and the recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the leer of the Lord's favor. Here Christ is saying, I am the one whom Isaiah 61 spoke of. That messianic prophecy of Isaiah 61 has come to pass. And I am in your midst. As Christ healed the sick, as he casted out demons, as he raised the dead, as he forgave sins, he did so as man empowered by the Spirit, thus fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. In Matthew chapter 12, this man who was blind, mute, and demon-possessed was brought to Christ for healing. And as Christ healed this man, the Pharisees said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this, that this man cast out demons. In other words, because Christ is of demons, that empowers him to cast out demons. Christ's rebuttal to the Pharisees is seen in verse 27 and 28. He says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But here, here, listen to what he says in verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Christ says, if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. Now, this cuts and this, this touches our doctrine of Christ with respect to the one person of two natures. If Christ did his miracles and, and all and, 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 and according to his divine nature, then why would he say, if I cast out demons by the power of the Spirit? If he did things according to his divine nature, that wouldn't make any sense. But he says that I cast out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. But also, um, there's something interesting that's happening. He says at the end of verse 31, Therefore I tell you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, will, will, will be a forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. In other words, these men, when they weren't just rejecting Christ, they were rejecting the Holy Spirit. They were, they were speaking blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So the working of the Holy Spirit in the, in the life of ministry of Christ was a judgment upon unbelieving Israel. And lastly, Peter, uh, in Acts 10, summarizes, summarizes the ministry of Christ in this way. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. 
He did all these things because God was with him. But if he did all things according to his divine nature, what was the need for God to be with him? Here's a great quote from Thomas Winani. Within the incarnation, the son of God never does anything as God. If he did, he would be acting as God in man. This, the incarnation will never permit. All that Jesus did as the son of God was done as man whether it was eating carrots or raising someone from the dead. He may have raised Lazarus from the dead by his divine power or better by the power of the Holy Spirit. But it was, but it was nonetheless as man that he did so. I would add all that Jesus Christ did as the son of God was done as man empowered by the Holy Spirit. And saints, I know a lot of what I've said um, can be new and, and, and over the top. But that is a summary of the life and ministry of the Holy Spirit in, or the, 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 the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ. All of Christ did. He did according to his human nature by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's it. All that Christ did he did by the working of the Spirit. Um, now, fifthly, we see the work of the Holy Spirit at the death of Christ. Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living dead? In other words, it was the Holy Spirit who supported who sustained, who comforted our Christ during his life, but in a special manner during the final hours of his life. It was the Holy Spirit, as Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he cried out to the Father, let this cup, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. It was the Holy Spirit who who counseled and comforted our Christ to say, nevertheless, not my will, but as you will. On the cross, it was through the Holy Spirit that Christ offered himself up to God. But John Owen brings up this point. He says, but what about the body of Christ? Christ was The Holy Spirit was there at the final hours of Christ leading up to Golgotha. He was there when Christ was on uh, that cross. But what about the body of Christ? In the womb, as Christ's body lay there, We read that externally his body was guarded by angels. The angels are the ones that guarded the tomb. But internally, internally, the body of Christ was preserved from corruption by the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.27, as as David said concerning Christ, For you will not abound in my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. John Owen says this pure and holy substance was preserved in its integrity by the overshadowing power of the Holy Spirit. Without any of those accidents of change which attend the dead bodies of others. That is mind-blowing. It is the Holy Spirit that sustains and keeps the body of Christ from seeing decay. 
Sinclair Ferguson has said concerning this point. By this agency, the Holy One was conceived in the darkness of the virgin's womb. By his presence, the Holy One was preserved in the darkness of Joseph's tomb. From womb to tomb, there was a deep devotion of the eternal spirit to the eternal son and flesh. And sixthly and lastly, the work of the Holy Spirit at the resurrection and exaltation of Christ. Although the Trinity was involved in the rising of Christ from the dead, it was the Holy Spirit who had a unique and a special role in the rising of Christ. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 1 verse 3 and 4 concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ was declared to be the son of God in power by the resurrection through the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16, Indeed, Great indeed, we confess in the mystery of godliness that he was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed uh, among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Christ was justified by the spirit in the resurrection. But saints, when we think of the resurrection, our minds must also think of Christ's glorification just as we are not to think of the death of Christ without the work of Christ. Sinclair Ferguson says, the world uh, of the Spirit, the word of the Spirit in the resurrection of Christ was not merely a work of recitation, resuscitation. He didn't just bring a dead body back to life. But Christ's resurrection by the Spirit was a transformation indeed, it was his glorification. John Owen says, it was the work of the Holy Spirit that glorified the human nature of Christ and made it every way meet for its eternal residence at the right hand of God. And a pattern, and this is glorious, and a pattern of the glorification of the bodies of them that believe in him. The work of the Spirit in the life and ministry of Christ sets a pattern for you, saints. Hear this. He who first made his nature holy now made it glorious. You see, saints, the work of the Spirit in the ministry in the life of Christ was not merely from womb to tomb, but it was from womb to throne. From the framing and forming of the human nature of Christ in the womb of Mary to the rising of that Holy One and the power and glory in his resurrection, the Holy Spirit was Christ's closest companion. And all that Christ did, he did as man, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now you might ask, that was great. As we speak of Christ... But what does that have to do for me? Well, first off, now you know your Christ better. Now you know his person better and what he has done and the workings that he has done in his life. You see, saints, when, we, when the preacher preaches, we're not to think that 
the sermon ends with a practical implication that we are to carry on in our life. But the great implication and application of every sermon is Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised. Now you know your Christ better. Now you worship him in light of that. But if we were to say anything about this lesson, with respect to its practical implications, we can say this, that the same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus Christ is the same Holy Spirit that is given to you. The same Holy Spirit. Now, of course, there's a difference. Yours is not without measure. But the same way the Holy Spirit come, came along the human nature of Christ and sustained, comforted him. How the Holy Spirit helped the human nature, the person of Christ, according to his human nature, learn the scriptures, learn obedience. It's the same Holy Spirit that is given to you via union with Christ. So saints, as we move along in our life, and when we consider what was said this evening, if Jesus Christ, according to his human nature, heavenly relied on the Holy Spirit, how much more do you need to rely on the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit has been given to you if you are in union with Christ. And I pray that this lesson, although it was about the glories of Christ, it also was the glories of the Holy Spirit as well. That he is the one who is the application of salvation. The Father and the Son breathe forth the Holy Spirit and they open the blind eyes of blind men. They take out our heart of stone and give us a heart that is living, that is a flesh. And I pray, saints, as you leave this sermon and leave this service, that you remember the glory of our Christ and the glory of the third person, the Trinity, that indwells within you. Lean on him. Do not do not lean on your own wisdom. Do not lean on your own works if you are of the faith. Lean on Christ's perfect work and lean on the one who was breathed out by the Father and Son to you. So now, saints, what we want to do is we want to partake of the Lord's